Hello and welcome to another Linguistics Career Cast, the podcast devoted to exploring careers for linguists outside academia. I'm your host, Laurel Sutton. Our guest on today's show is Ezra Wishagrod. He is a language engineer at Amazon Alexa, focusing on entertainment, including music, video, and sports requests from customers. His work spans natural language understanding and automatic speech recognition. He holds a BA in linguistics from Columbia University and an MS in linguistics from Georgetown University. Topics covered include phonetics, sociolinguistics, job search, networking, government work, tech, Alexa, and salary negotiations. Links to Ezra's LinkedIn profile and to the Georgetown program are in the show notes. Welcome, Ezra. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Laurel. Really appreciate being here. I think people are going to be interested to hear about your journey and the job that you had now, which we can highlight is with Amazon, which, as I understand it, employs quite a few linguists. And uh, there have been other folks that I've known who've gone to work there. So we will start with your journey from undergrad and then talk through how you got to where you are today. You are one of the people who was in the fabulous program at Georgetown, like many other people. But before that, uh, you got your undergrad at Columbia University. So can you talk about that and how you got interested in linguistics? For sure, definitely. Um, and, And actually... I would say that if we're talking about how I got interested in linguistics, it really has to start earlier. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> for sure. I mean, I think, I think uh, the story that I've heard from a lot of other people um, in linguistics, whether it's people I've met on, at conferences, people I've met uh, in undergrad, grad, a lot of people have had sort of those, you know, epiphany moments that <laughs> they wanted to study something like linguistics before they even realized li- what linguistics really was. I would say that I. Uh, I went to a heavily Russian-speaking preschool um, mm-hmm. when um, growing up in Boston. Um, although I'm, you know, not a Russian speaker, never have been. Um, I began noticing, you know, that certain kids would pronounce things a little bit different. And um, I remember someone was, in my mind, mispronouncing the word "thing" by saying "ting." And I very mm-hmm. much remember, as a four-year-old, like experimenting with my tongue. How the heck are they doing that? Is their tongue in a different part of their mouth? Now, this is like a little kind of factoid that I didn't think about again until I was like 19, 20 years old, beginning to study linguistics. But there's a lot of those little kind of moments that I distinctly remember from my childhood, stopping and wondering, huh, that's really weird. I think another one I had was I remember um, I remember in, in learning like social studies or something like that, I very much remember seeing uh, written Dutch for the first time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, you know, English, I'm an English speaker. And I remember just being really interested in the fact that every time English, you know, would have this letter, Dutch has this letter. And there's a bunch of little moments like that that sort of coalesce. Um, I, I would say, though, the first time I could really say that I was, you know, properly interested in linguistics was, I don't know how it happened, but somehow I found myself sitting down reading a book by John McWhorter when mm-hmm. I was a freshman at Columbia. And I had no idea how this book got into my lap, but I just remember thinking, wow, it's really cool to think about language as a historical, as a sort of, you know, a, a historical being, to think about language that's something that, that changes over time, thinking about language in relation to other languages. It, it just kind of dawned to me then, 
And I was so lucky as to look in the back of the book and discover that John McWhorter actually taught at my college. Uh So um, I ended up sitting in on a couple of his courses, um, the beginning of must've been my sophomore year. And then I just kind of looked in the mirror and realized I'm doing this for the rest of my life. Like there's no option. (laughs) There's no like other way I can imagine myself um, having a professional life on this earth Mm -hmm. besides for doing something that's language related. Um, So it really started there. Um, I had already taken courses uh, in various languages, in, in German and in French, Hebrew. Um, I was already doing some math-related things. So those are you know subjects that one can pivot into linguistics reasonably easily from. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it all kind of started there. What did you particularly study or, or favor when you were getting your BA in linguistics? I guess the most, the most honest answer there uh, and it sounds a little, I guess maybe a little cheeky, but it's, it's the truth. Basically, whatever I wanted. Um, <laughs> okay. Because uh, for those that know Columbia linguistics well, it, at least when I was there, it was not a proper department. Mm, um, the linguistics okay. department had been, had, had ended in a lot of ways sometime during the 80s. Um, and there's some lore about that. You know, there wasn't that much regulation over what a linguistics major uh, had to do. Um, so my, my interest kind of ran free. I didn't have to, there was no requirement saying you have to take syntax too, you have to take phonetics three, et cetera. But I definitely gravitated towards, um, you know, the, both the socio world as well as the phonetics phonology world. So courses that roughly approximated, you know, socio phonetics, phonology, as well um, as things that actually dealt a lot with language spread and language death. So mm-hmm. I took a course um, in the languages of Africa, um, which I found really, really compelling. And I ended up doing um, a lot of field work um, while I was an undergrad, both with the uh, the state of the Boston accent in New England, that was actually mm. through a researcher at Dartmouth, um, as well as um, working um, with Zazaki, which is a Kurdish language via um, via some uh, faculty members that were doing um, research with um, immigrants in New York. Mm-hmm. So it, it was really just like a fun two and a half, three years of studying linguistics, kind of studying whatever I wanted um, and, and every kind of subdiscipline. I view it, it as sort, of as a, sort of as, you know, a real kind of free-for-all department um, mm-hmm. that, you know, was really exhilarating. That's so funny that uh, just to go back to what you said about doing both sociolinguistic stuff and phonetic stuff, that was totally me. And it was also one of the other folks that we've interviewed on this podcast, Wendy Jacinto. And I thought when I was doing it, I thought it was just me. And it seemed weird because those things are in some ways at opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, sociolinguistics is in the view of some linguists, not even real linguistics. It's very squishy. You know, it's very Mm -hmm. social dynamic stuff, whereas phonetics is science, right? You're looking at waveforms, you're looking at data and spreadsheets Mm -hmm. and numbers and things like that. But I found that both of those things, they kind of went together because you're, you're just, you know, you're looking at real data in sociolinguistics. Of course, you are looking at data. It is a science. It's not just squishy stuff, but they, those things call to me more than anything else that I studied. And so I I bet I'm going to find more people who love those two things as well. Yeah. I mean, first of all, Laurel sounds like you got great taste. (laughs) <laughs> and second of all, I really got to meet this Wendy person. 
Well, well done, Wendy. Yeah, she's really good. And I, actually, I will say not to, to talk too much during your interview. Partly it was because um, when I was in grad school, the person I wanted to work with in sociolinguistics was Robin Lakoff, so mm. a giant in the field. And the sure. person I wanted to work with in phonetics was John O'Hala, also a giant mm-hmm. in the field. So I was extremely lucky to work with two people who were absolutely, you know, top of their game and doing stuff that no other people were doing. And I think in a lot of linguistics departments, it makes a difference, right? I mean, you're entrance was because of John McWhorter. And for a lot of other people, it was like, I want to study with that person. And then you go and you get interested in whatever that person is is interested in or doing research on. For sure. And it's, it's one of the funny things about applying to grad school and you're really applying to a person. Yes, um, exactly. And when uh, John McWhorter and also you know the linguist uh, Alan Timberlake, also at Columbia, when, mm-hmm, they, when they were mm-hmm. telling me that it, it sounded a little bit icky at first. It just sounded <laughs> like way too personal, almost like you were dating somebody. It was a very right. odd kind of way to think about it. But it really is true because we're, we're a niche enough field and in many ways, really a new enough field mm-hmm. um, in, in the way that it's, that's, that it's studied um, that you get to the cutting edge reasonably fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that reason, like, you know, you really want to be able to bond yourself to a small group of academics or one particular academic mm-hmm. um, as soon as you can. Um, yep. So I, I found that whole process uh, kind of fascinating. So uh, getting back to your timeline, your, yeah. your tale of years. Uh, so you're at Columbia and uh, you finished. And then did you go straight to grad school or did you take some time off? I actually, you know what? I was about to say that I went straight. I actually did not go straight. Okay. Um, basically, I graduated in December. Um, and I was not starting grad school at Georgetown until I guess it was the following August. Um, so in a very uh, in a very non-linguistics uh, uh, journey, um, I had a friend a friend and uh, a friend and I met up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and drove a, an old car across <laughs> Canada. So basically, we drove from Michigan uh, over the Upper Peninsula into Minnesota, up into I guess it's Saskatchewan. And drove all the way clear across that country uh, to Vancouver, and then down the west coast to Berkeley. Wow! Yeah, so a little awesome. bit of break in between. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was awesome for sure. I think it's really key after all the craziness of like applying to like you know ten grad schools mm-hmm. and you know having like this really you know academically intense college experience. You really need that time to just be like wandering around the woods in Alberta. It's very mm-hmm. helpful. You know? Sure. Yeah. So when you were in undergrad and then, you know, you had this little break and you're in grad school, were you also working either as a, a TA or an RA or other jobs in that time? Or were you really just focused on the academics? So when I was an undergrad, I was a uh, research assistant on at least two different occasions. Um, so firstly, I was a research assistant for uh, research into Zazaki, as I mentioned, where basically um, outside of class, me and several classmates from a language, do- language documentation class would actually work with you know various immigrants from what is now Turkey, mm-hmm. um, recording their language, um, doing phonetic elicitations, um, sometimes syntax- syntactic elicitations as well to you know basically get uh, get some data. Um, mm-hmm. For the for the coming summer, I actually ended up writing my undergraduate uh, thesis um, on Zazaki, and that was it was a really incredible experience because you get to you get to kind of see that when you're working in documentary linguistics, really so little of your day is actually linguistics. Mm-hmm. It's much more in in my case, you know, 
taking uh, the train downtown um, to meet up with someone near their college, you know, taking the F train till the end to some part of Queens where um, you're mm-hmm. going to be speaking to a native speaker. Most of my role really was kind of hanging out with people, taking trains, that kind of thing. And it was actually very similar when um, I did uh, field work uh, here in New England. I'm uh, actually speaking to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, I grew up here. I grew up uh, not not far from here. And I was working um, with uh, James Stanford, um, a linguist uh, up at Dartmouth, who was doing work um, on the Boston accent um, and New England English uh, writ large. And um, he was basically looking for um, additional recordings in the Boston area. He's, he's a little bit far away. For those that don't know, Dartmouth is about a two-hour drive north of Boston. And basically, um, my role for the summer um, between my junior and senior years was essentially get a recording device, go everywhere in the Boston area I could, and get recordings for the Boston accent. Mm-hmm. Um, so very often I was, you know, getting off at a different stop of the metro every single day. I was going to neighborhoods that I, parts of Boston I had never been before. Um, I was going up and down, uh, some local references here, going up and down Revere Beach. I was in Southie. Um, I was in Roxbury. I was spending, honestly, most of my days just chatting to, with people because most people certainly aren't willing to get themselves recorded that easily. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but I think through that, you're able to get, you know, a lot of recordings from demographics you that really are not in the literature. Um, mm-hmm. And that was a really gratifying moment because, you know, I think that was the first time that kind of get to see the difference between documentary linguistics as someone who is a cultural insider, which in a way I am because I'm from here versus, you know, when you're working with Zazaki amongst people who come from a country that you've never been to before. Right. Doing that kind of field work, what you're describing, which is, I think, something everybody does, well, everybody should do in graduate school, that's the intersection of the sociolinguistics and the phonetics, isn't it? Because, as you say, eliciting the right kind of data from people is all about your social skill and getting them to um, not perform, but to convey things naturally. And then the phonetics comes in where you're actually like looking for those features that you're trying to, to capture. So I think you got to be expert in both if you're going to do good field methods. For sure. And honestly, you have to be really, really gentle. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that you're dealing with a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of emotions um, mm-hmm. and it's very, to very different extents than the two examples. I mean, with uh, with New England English, you know, there's certain there's certain feelings about those people who speak with Boston accents, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I have it. I grew up speaking a little bit with a Boston accent. It was trained out of me by rote. Um, so you know, here in, in Boston, you know, if you're talking to someone and you kind of want to get someone to pronounce something again to see if it was rhotic or non-rhotic, you got to be careful because if they're really focusing, they're probably going to be rhotic as opposed to non-rhotic. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, it really was to an extreme working with Zazaki speakers um, who have a, uh, to put it politely, a um, complicated political relationship with uh, with Turkey and the Turkish language. You know, when you're getting examples where you discover that, that the language is becoming nominative accusative, accusative as opposed to split ergative, they're going to be trying to correct themselves back to the original mm-hmm, Zazaki split mm-hmm. ergativity. Um, but, you know, you really got to capture it in the moment to view how they're speaking the language. And there's a lot of, a lot of social skills involved. And of course, you know, it's, um, this is one of the most personal sciences there is. It's language, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and you get to see that again and again. It's so interesting. So how did you decide to go to Georgetown? What made you decide to do that? Oh, man, that was a tough decision. 
Yeah, I uh, actually haven't thought about that decision in a while. Yeah, basically, I'm lucky enough to say, well, first of all, there was there was where to apply and then where to go. Um, and I'm, I'm lucky enough to say that there were decisions for both. So in terms of where to apply, essentially, I, I looked at my undergraduate thesis, um, which was very, uh, say, socio-phonetic, maybe even socio-syntactic in nature, and basically looked at who I cited. And mm-hmm. I applied to those places. So um, uh, Ito and Mester, um, for whom uh, I cited many times, I applied to their department. Um, and it ended up being the case that I applied mostly on the West Coast, so almost the entire UC system, um, as well as uh, Georgetown, um, Stanford, and I think there was maybe one or two others on, on uh, the East Coast. And it was really as simple as that. And I remember writing all the different applications, and you know, I, I felt that you know, it was really freeing because I just talked about what I was interested in, really. Um, I was looking at different CVs for the different professors that I might work with, um, tried to tie in those professor CVs with my research, um, and then sent them off. I think that others might go further in depth than that. Um, truth be told, I didn't know any better um, because mm-hmm. Columbia Linguistics, no advising. Columbia as a whole doesn't do advising, and mm-hmm. Columbia Linguistics, there's no department or resources for that. So, you know, my my professors, my linguistics professors were as helpful as one could imagine someone being, given the fact you don't have advise, real advisory resources. Mm-hmm. So I sent in those applications, lucky enough to say, you know, I had, God, like three to five uh, uh, options in the end. What was interesting is that the really fast filter, before we even talk about, you know, all the academics and all the visits, there were certain cities I just didn't want to live in. Mm-hmm. And I remember my choices, my my real choices at the time were basically D.C., as well as San Diego, Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I Santa Cruz, I think there are some people that love Santa Cruz, California, and I respect them a lot. Not my cup of tea, to, mm-hmm. to put it lightly. Um, Santa Barbara, I think would have been, um, it's a beautiful place, probably one of the best places one could retire to. Um, once again, I think it was not the place I wanted to live for six years. I really thought hard about San Diego. So after going through the academic filter, what I would be academically interested in and where I was, where I'd be living, it really came down to San Diego, uh, versus Georgetown. And, um, one of the things that I think really made me very intrigued about San Diego was uh, the faculty was absolutely incredible. Um, there were a couple of professors who I could easily imagine them being my advisor, and I know they would have been incredibly lovely advisors. But one of the things I also thought about is that coming from the kind of, I would say, low advisor department that I came from is that I assumed ignorance in myself in that I assumed that I really didn't know what kind of linguistics I wanted to go into. Mm-hmm. And it's not like UCSD isn't broad or wasn't broad, but Georgetown is crazy broad. Mm-hmm. So in Georgetown, you can do computational linguistics really well. You can do sociophonetics. You can do syntax. You can even do language policy, really anything in between. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. massive, massive department, deeply historical in, in many beautiful ways. So I ended up leaning much harder towards uh, Georgetown. It's a very difficult decision in the end, but chose DC, loved it. Rental prices could have been cheaper. That's my one hang up with DC. But, um, you know, that was ultimately um, how I made that decision. You know, I consider myself fortunate because 
the admissions process can get so crazy that for a lot of people, they go where they're accepted, which Mm -hmm. I respect that a lot. But, you know, it it was a difficult decision, but ultimately I was happy where I went. Were you thinking as you went to Georgetown about the world beyond that, that you were going to stick in academics or that you were really starting to focus on something outside in, in industry? Industry wasn't the faintest thing in my mind. Hmm, okay, interesting. So I would have, you could have asked me when I was, you know, 16 years old, I would have said, I am either going to get maybe an MD, but probably a PhD. Mm-hmm. I was I was sure of it. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that um, there's like a couple of people in my family who um, who had PhDs. And, you know, I, I, you know, was in a lot of reverence uh, of those people, my grandparents. But I just assumed that, you know, I'm this kid who who loves learning, really enjoys school, loves going to class, loves, you know, conquering new topics. You know, why would I why would I go to work? You know, mm-hmm. why like just just, you know, be be in school as long as you can and do school professionally as a professor. You know, I enjoyed relating topics to people. Why not? So in, in my mind, my thought process going into grad school was, all right, I'll be in Georgetown for however long it takes the PhD to be done. You know, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, five years, six years, seven years, whatever. And after that, looking for a tenure track position. And when did that change? So uh, <laughs> this is, uh, when I say this, uh, I just want to be clear to, to anyone listening that, you know, this is my, my personal take on, uh, on a bunch of things. But basically, I was in a, like, I forget exactly the name of the course. It was, a, it was an advanced phonology class. I very much remember the paper that we were reading. It's an amazing paper. It's about the sonority hierarchy in, uh, and I believe it was Sibirwa or Tswana. It was one of the languages of, of, of Botswana. Uh-huh. Very, very cool article. And I remember me and three or four other grad students in this class having a very in-depth debate about optimality theory and uh-huh. which restrictions should be ordered before others should a particular restriction um, be increasingly uh, phonetically based or not increasingly phonetically based, et cetera? What was the most economic choice of, uh, of various rankings? And there was just this moment that I had during this debate, which was basically some versions of who gives a damn? <laughs> I had this, I had this like small moment of like, really who cares? Right. For, mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons, you know, firstly, there's the question of is optimality theory really a good theory, which is a topic for another, maybe another podcast. But it's also that we are debating about a paper Mm -hmm. that maybe, despite the fact it was an excellent paper, maybe 400 people have read, Mm -hmm. you know, 800 people maybe have read it all the way through, maybe, maybe, you know, a thousand people have cited, but even that would be pretty high. And in terms of like how this affects the world, this doesn't affect the world at large. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much it affects linguistics. I, I don't even know. This definitely doesn't even affect the people of Botswana or those languages. They don't care about this, nor should they. So the question is, is like, you know, this is essentially both optimality theory and even large parts of phonology and phonetics. They're basically, you know, academic exercises, granted, mm-hmm. that are fun, fun enough that I would be willing to spend my whole life doing it, granted. But the actual, like, human effect of this is basically does not really stretch that far beyond this classroom of me and four or five graduate students. Mm-hmm. And that actually, that hit me hard that day. And normally I was used to reading, you know, for four or five hours after class. I read for like 15 minutes. I read an abstract <laughs> and that was it. Because it, it really hit me hard 
on that particular uh, Tuesday that you only have one life to live and your effect, if you're doing this, if, if you're doing linguistics of this arcane, unclear what good this might do. So yeah. that was kind of the moment where things started to shift a little bit for me. I'm not sure why it was that moment. That's so interesting. Yeah, I, I think many people have that realization, not in such a light bulb moment, but maybe sort of a a creeping realization where you get a lot of little events that build up and then finally you go, oh, I see. I need to get a job. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> you know, like a, a job that's actually going to be doing something. Um, that's just, that's a great story. I'm so glad you told that. Thank you for sharing that with everyone. So having had this realization and the world shake beneath your feet, what did you do after that? So I sat on it just because I, I tend to not trust emotion. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's important that humans have emotion, but um, I tend to try to, you know, maybe get some harder evidence mm -hmm. uh, before kind of making a, a decision as large as, you know, leaving grad school. And I remember not that long afterwards, I'm not sure if it was days or weeks, but um, we have or had, not sure what's going on there, but Georgetown has a, um, a phonetics phonology reading group that would meet uh, once a week on Fridays. And we had a guest speaker. Um, and this person's talk was brilliant. It was really one of the best, like 45 minutes I've ever had listening to a human being. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was working on epithetic vowels in Georgian, um, which is super cool topic to begin with. Those consonant clusters are crazy. It's amazing. But I think afterwards, one of the faculty members present encouraged us to ask her about her process in terms of applying for academic positions. Um, and having already had that light bulb moment I mentioned earlier, I was kind of curious. So I listened very closely to the questions. I asked a couple of myself. And it, she told us the following thing that, you know, basically this person had applied to dozens of departments, not just around the United States, not even around North America, but around the world in basically every department that used one of her uh, languages that she's fluent in, which was three different languages. So she was applying all over the first world, including, you know, and then some departments in the third world as well, and had gotten, you know, some traction um, on some, you know, uh, you know, non-tenure track positions, nothing for tenure track. This person had been mm -hmm. applying for apparently multiple years. And this mm -hmm. was, without a doubt, the most intelligent non-tenured linguist I had ever met, mm -hmm. right? Like my esteem for this person was sky high almost immediately. And... I didn't want to sell myself short, you know, maybe with a lot of years of hard work, I can get maybe close to her level. But just seeing that mm -hmm. and realizing that's what the job market is, this person who has like, who's unbelievably brilliant with very little geographic uh, freedom, hold on a second. Mm -hmm. Like, that's when my emotions began to get validated. At the same time as this, also, I was coincided with, you know, begun to date the woman who eventually is now my wife. Um, which, you know, makes you start thinking a little bit longer term. And, you know, she has career aspirations too. She has dreams. What if, you know, I have a job that is in, you know, some far off part of the country or world, but, you know, she gets into her grad school in a different part of the world. We have a two body problem. You know, all mm -hmm. these thoughts started running into my mind of like, oh, wait, there's actually like something more tangible to the emotion that I was having. And then I kind of looked myself in the mirror and went, oh, oh, crap. Because this this kind of outlook that I had for like a decade at that point, which was, you know, get a PhD, be in academia forever, it, it fell apart remarkably quickly. Mm -hmm. I think that 
what you've just expressed is incredibly common. And it's for many people a real rug pull right at the end of graduate school because you've spent all this time preparing for what you think is going to be your career in academia, but no one has talked to you about what the job market is actually like. Mm -hmm. And then you get out there and you start looking at it and you go, hey, wait a minute, there's no jobs. Like yeah. there are no jobs, actually, not not any jobs. And and I think other people, too, have had the same experience as you, where you see people that you feel are, are you know, whether rightly or wrongly more qualified or better than you, and they're not getting hired either. And I think this is a problem across linguistics university, linguistics departments in universities across the United States and, and also in other countries as well, is that there's a real denial of reality there about what jobs are actually going to be available because every department in the graduate department acts as though all of the graduates have a shot at getting a job, right, in academia. Yeah. And they don't. I mean, 99% of the people who graduate are not going to get jobs in academia, but there's a pretense that you will. And the work that I've been doing with the Linguistics Beyond Academia group and the, the um, boot camp we had last summer was just to accept that reality, right? To say, let, let, please, let's stop pretending that there's jobs out there and let's focus on what the reality is, which is that you're going to have to get a job that's not in academia. Sure. I think it would be very beneficial if departments would actually acknowledge this truth and then do some work towards helping their students prepare for what they're actually going to be doing and not what they think they might be doing. I wish likewise. You know, I have a bit of a pessimistic view on this, which I, I hope is wrong. Um, and I hope I <laughs> disabused of this notion at some point. But basically, I think if the truth was more articulated, I think less people would be going to grad school. That's probably true. I would counter that by saying... Mm -hmm. There are so many job opportunities for linguists now, interesting, exciting job opportunities for yep. which you can have a BA. Having an MA really helps. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have a PhD, but you do for some things, especially in computational linguistics. They really would like you to have a PhD. But you can go to grad school and get a master's and then have this amazing array of jobs in different areas that you can go to and they're great and interesting and you're well qualified for them. You're just taking out that the step of the rug pull <laughs> and yeah. um, not feeling the stigma of, oh, too bad for you. You didn't get a job in academia. You must be a failure. For sure. I would certainly hope so. I think one of the things, and you know, we can speak about this as well, is that if I had to get into the mind of the admissions committee of you know various departments, I would imagine, certainly for the PhDs, maybe also for the masters, you know, a lot of academic departments probably want to you know train other academics to have sure, you know, disciples, etc. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely agree, and I, I can I'm a personal example of this that you know having you know something beyond a BA in linguistics really does help you on the job market. That mm -hmm. is absolutely the case. You know, I worry about what I will call very, very tongue in cheek as the stench of going into industry, mm, right? Mm -hmm. That basically, you know, someone who wants to train more academics like his or herself will kind of smell that and be a little bit less keen um, mm, because mm -hmm. I was never such an applicant. I was an applicant that really to you know, the deepest depths of his soul really wanted to be um, fully uh, an academic. Um, and I, I openly wonder what it is like to apply when it's clear that that's, you know, the future that you want. But honestly, I, I think I'm you know more interested to hear um, other narratives that you dive into on this podcast. 
to kind mm-hmm. of settle that because to me it's an unfinished thought that I'm having. I think it's changing. I think right now we're in the middle of a change from what I've seen. Definitely when I was in graduate school, which feels like a million years ago, this is the 1990s, it was what you were describing. And mm-hmm. you were considered a failure. If you did not get a job in academia, that was it. You had a big red L slapped on your forehead. Mm-hmm. And, and people would say things, they would literally say those words, like too bad that you didn't get a job. Even when you got a good job in industry and you were well paid and it was fun and cool and all the rest of that stuff, there was still that stench attached to it. Like, ah, you didn't make it in academia. You're not as good as other people, which is insane, you know, to, to judge people's career paths like that. I think it is changing. There are many more programs now which are starting to focus on training for jobs outside of academia. Um, the, the Georgetown MLC program is a great one, sure. and there are others that, that do it too. So I think the reality is beginning to set in. And unfortunately, it seems like it happens more at smaller universities rather than the, the big R1 universities, which are still almost literally in the ivory tower where they don't really look out to see what's happening. But my point of view is they're going to have to because the higher education is collapsing in on itself pretty quickly. So mm-hmm. if they're not going to accept reality, they're not going to have any students who can actually afford to go to college and they're not going to have a university anymore or a linguistics department. They'll just get slammed with the rest of the social sciences and they won't have a department. They'll just get to offer some classes. It will become a, a sink or swim situation for the departments if they don't accept what's really going on. For sure. And um, I, to kind of underline your point, one of the things that I found, it, found very useful, I think, in this, in this time when, when I was thinking about all of this, is the LSA publishes a lot of stats. And I was very mm-hmm. impressed by that. And one of the things that was really cool was that they published, I think it's how many masters and PhDs in linguistics the United States was producing every year. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget if it was the US and Canada, but something, you know, in North America, let's say. Um, and I remember the number being in the high hundreds combined, maybe a thousand mm-hmm. combined. Mm-hmm. And I remember I maybe saw when I was in grad school like three positions in all of North America (laughs) a year, even being advertised. And some of them didn't Uh end up coming to fruition for anyone. And I just remember thinking like, you know, I'm pretty good. I was a pretty good grad student. There's definitely other Ezra's. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's definitely other people that are, that will be incredibly well qualified for those jobs. And I just remember thinking, you know, these odds don't make enough sense. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, another kind of realization hit me um, as well where basically there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through in order to finally perhaps get that tenure track position. And a lot of them have to do with ultimate flexibility. Mm -hmm. It has to do with geographic flexibility for postdocs. It has to do with flexibility of your time, flexibility of your resources, Mm -hmm. because you're not really being paid a lot when you're in these, this, you know, post, you know, postdoc treadmill, as they say, or, you know, staying in a PhD program until completion. Again, you know, you're not making a lot. You're, you'd be making a lot more in in uh, outside of academia, outside of grad school, and that hits different populations differently. So, absolutely. I mean, look, in my case, I will say I am very much limited in the parts of the country that I can live in. Frankly, I want to live near a synagogue community that makes me comfortable. Mm-hmm. And for those who might not be familiar with with you know the demographics and geography behind that decision, that's not so many places in the United States. Mm-hmm. For people, you know, I, I, have, I have no children, had no children then, but people who have children, really tough to move every three years, particularly mm-hmm. tough. 
And these mm -hmm. are all the things that were kind of discussed in confidence sort of off campus between me and others that for people that are, yes. you know, people that are parents, people that are of particular demographics, you know, people, this doesn't, doesn't apply to me, but people who have citizenship issues in the United States, you know, mm -hmm. this can really be an issue to the point that people who actually can make it through this whole gauntlet to eventually have the tenure track position, you have to have come either, you know, come from a background or make really excruciating choices to make it to the end, mm -hmm. you know? So it, it hurts, frankly, diversity in academia. It, you know, this whole pipeline isn't good for academia either, which mm -hmm. is, it's a really tough mm -hmm. thing to see. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, this is something I've talked with some other people about as well, that academia likes to pretend that it's a level playing field, right? That yeah. that it's a meritocracy and the best person, the most qualified person is going to get the job. And that's absolutely not true for all of the reasons that you just said. And it gets worse when you're considering things like your ethnicity, right? If you're a person of color, are you really going to move to someplace like, I don't know, Idaho? There's a lot of nice people in Idaho, but there's a lot of white supremacists there also. You know, that's just reality. What if you don't come from generational wealth? What if you don't have money and you can't just up and move wherever you want to? What if you are the support for your family? You can't just leave. What if you already have, as you were saying, you have kids and you can't afford to do that? Or what if you're disabled in some way where you can't just go wherever they're going to send you. All of those things are a huge factor, and yet they're never talked about. That stuff is never brought out into the open. Those conversations happen in private, off campus, and grad school makes us pretend like everything's cool, and we're never supposed to mention that sort of stuff. And that's just, again, denying the reality that exists and makes it so much harder for people when they get to the end of their graduate career and suddenly find that they can't do what they thought they were going to do for the last eight or 10 years. And I, I think it's criminal to do that to people. I really do. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, look, I consider myself lucky in that. Hopefully it's not too dramatic to phrase it this way. I got out at 26, you know, mm -hmm. um, I was able to get out of the system um, at 26 for a lot of people. If they have that realization, that realization can sometimes come later, often after, you know, multiple postdocs, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I've seen it happen to people at the age of 40, at the age of 42. Yeah. In which case, you know, it, it's a bit tougher in a lot of those cases um, because mm -hmm. you've spent more of your life not doing, you know, things that you might rather have been doing. From financial sense, you spend more years making much less money than you could have made in a freer market, those kind of things. But I think in the scheme of things, you know, I, I consider myself fortunate that I had the realization at the timing that I did. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, particularly I also had the realization I did before COVID. And I know mm. I only heard a little bit of what was going on uh, at Georgetown and elsewhere during COVID, it being particularly tough for graduate students. So, you know, I, I do count my lucky stars in this regard. Absolutely. So this brings us back after that um, tangent on philosophy, which was extremely <laughs> important. And thank you very much for raising that, because I, I just don't think that that kind of stuff can be talked about enough. Right. Like mm -hmm. we, we have to get we have to be the ones to bring this up and acknowledge the reality that's out there and all of these unspoken factors that exist that that nobody in any department seems to want to talk about and you know just go on living this fantasy like yeah sure it's all great and we're gonna all get the jobs we want to because everything is fair which it isn't so you had this realization what did you do on your journey to actually make this happen well firstly i left after the masters um mm -hmm. i think it was definitely clear that this was not going to be the place for me if i was you know, of the mindset 
that uh, that this was not going to be a forever thing for me. I think the and I, I certainly don't blame the department for this, but you know it is an you know an incubator of future academics. At least most of the department at Georgetown is. Um, um, you know, I was not, you know, in the MLC, I was not in some of the, you know, computational parts of the department. Um, and it would not have been a good place for me to have stayed for years, you know, three, four, five, six. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, while that was happening and I was writing my master's thesis, um, to, you know, you know finish up with the masters and, and skedaddle, um, I started applying for jobs. Um, and, I can't begin to describe how unprepared I was for any of <laughs> okay. that. Um, I, I think, I mean, ultimately, um, I had lovely, lovely people um, at Georgetown, particularly um, in the uh, MLC, particularly um, Professor Johnston, who mm -hmm. was able to help me a lot. And so, again, I consider myself one of the fortunate ones in this regard. But I didn't even know what to search on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Because... As as often befalls uh, linguists in this in uh, uh, in DC, when you search linguist, what that means is a translator. It means you're working for a three letter agency uh, translating mm -hmm. uh, uh, national security documents, which is mm -hmm. you know not at, at all what I desired to do. Didn't know how to search. Um, I didn't know who to talk to. I I didn't know how to network outside mm -hmm. of an academic uh, environment. I didn't feel comfortable speaking with other people uh, in my department about what I was doing like if it felt like all these you know searches on my uh um on my you know on my safari on my computer was like some kind of contraband you have to do incognito searches right just to, so nobody sees what you're doing I mean yeah basically like you know you're trying to figure out like you know jobs linguist and and mm -hmm. uh and figuring out something um and I, I think the first stage was just kind of being uh open for anything and getting the mistakes done quickly. Mm. At that point, what were you looking for? Like, what did you think your training had best suited you for, for an industry job? I had no idea. <laughs> okay. And basically all I had to go on was basically I wanted to get somewhere at 9am. I wanted to do something that even vaguely resembled linguistics and then go home at 5, 530. Mm -hmm. That's all I knew. And long story short, I think talking to Professor Johnston, as well as other members of the MLC, speaking to the one or two other uh, linguists um, associated with Georgetown that I knew were having similar thoughts, um, as well as a couple of people I went to undergrad with um, who had you know, gotten jobs at undergrad, not pursued linguistics further, I was beginning to coalesce around you know, two sort of types of jobs basically and in broad in broad categories number one was you know to say uh linguistics and tech mm -hmm. i heard about these kind of mythical teams at you know google and amazon and microsoft um and intel that you know did real linguistics for for tech and i thought that was amazing that they were working for cartana and alexa etc but i'm living in dc at the time dc is not the kind of place where you do that the other mm -hmm. kind of job that i heard about is essentially linguists that work in the defense government world. Mm -hmm. And living in DC at the time, you know, my wife, um, or at the time, I suppose, uh, given the timing of my fiance, had uh, a great job uh, right in the District of Columbia. And, you know, I knew we were going to stay there for a little while longer. I looked for a governmental job in linguistics, and that was actually able 
to kind of narrow my search on LinkedIn. And even with all the kind of different, you know, networking events that I began to go to, oddly enough, it was a lucky LinkedIn search um, Mm -hmm. where I was searching, you know, all the keywords that I possibly could, linguistics, Washington, D.C., you know, syntax, semantics, whatever. I was able to come upon uh, someone offering a job in the D.C. area who, lo and behold, was also herself a uh, Georgetown graduate. It's um, the networking part of it is super important whether you're doing it intentionally or whether it just happens like that, right? That you find somebody that you have something in common with, whether you went to the same school or you know the same people or you have the same friends or, or something. And as you were saying, academia doesn't really prepare you to do business type networking, but it is nope. probably the single most important thing when you're out there looking for a job. For sure. Um, and I would say that, you know, I went I think a lot of networking is is flailing, um, at least the way the yeah. way I feel. Where basically, I went to a bunch of networking events that I thought maybe there'd be one or two roles that would be linguistics adjacent, but it turns out it's a bunch of kids that want to get into consulting, mm-hmm. which is totally fine. Um, but like, I don't want to you know necessarily go work at a consulting firm at this point. Mm-hmm. I I went on Monster.com. I I went to um, mixers that were you know just kind of governmental people that were looking on working on the hill. I think anything. Kind of, kind of grasping for uh, for anything that was close to linguistics. I I ended up interning for um, a, a very small language policy group that did uh, work on the Hill um, mm-hmm. for about three months before I started my first proper job after grad school. Um, completely unpaid, you know, maybe eight to ten hours of uh, of uh, uh, of work per week. Um, though I considered it a very valuable experience because it, it kind of showed me that, you know what the mission of a role might not be the same thing as what you actually do day to day. And basically, you know, working for, um, for JNCL, the Joint National Committee on Languages for, for three months, you know, it was really cool because you were able to kind of work a bit in the you know, language education and how it relates to Congress. But, you know, day to day, it was a lobbying job. And mm-hmm. that's amazing for people that want to lobby. I do not want to lobby. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you kind of learn a lot from that and, mm-hmm. you know, you're just prepare for a bunch of failures, prepare for, you know, going from DC all the way down into Northern Virginia for a job that you think might, you know, work with linguistics as advertising based. And it turns out, you know, it's very clearly a, a, a failing business and everyone who works there is on the way out, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Be prepared for those kind of stories that you laugh about over beer, like, you know, three, three years afterwards, mm-hmm. but, you know, eventually I was able to um, connect um, with uh, with Emily Pace, who was you know my first boss mm-hmm. out of uh, out of um, out of graduate school, and I eventually was able to land a wonderful job. I worked at for um, a little bit over a year um, at Expert System um, mm-hmm. um, in uh, in excuse me Alexandria, Virginia, um, and it was lovely. It was you know information extraction, documentate and uh, document categorization, having to do with you know Department of Energy, Department of Defense. You know it's the kind of thing where you know I have you know forty thousand defense documents. You know which ones are about counterterrorism and which ones are about civil war. And you know you could write you know very very basic code um, where you know you could write rules that um, were saying oh if you use uh, you know this sort of verb with this kind of agency. Is that going to be talking? 
is that going to probably be referred to someone who was the terrorist or someone who was a victim of a terrorist attack, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So something that is certainly by topic is about, you know, defense or Department of Energy or something, um, but really deals with linguistic kind of questions. And it's really mm-hmm. hard to find that kind of job when you when you you know don't know who to you know you don't know who to ask you don't know who to look for but you know once you find it it's really incredible and really for that first year after grad school I was able to get up in the morning in DC you know jump on the blue line head down to to Alexandria Virginia and essentially do linguistics for most of the day then go home (laughs) and that was a really big revelation to me. So you were working for Emily Pace, who's one of the the folks who has been involved in the LCL and the Linguistics Beyond Academia. Uh Were you working on a team of people who were all linguists or were there some linguists and some not linguists? What what was it in reality versus what did you expect when you got hired there? So it was a pretty upfront uh, process um, in that it was a small enough company that everyone who almost everyone that I was going to be working with was part of the interview process. Mm-hmm. So essentially I was lucky enough to work with a team that was one linguist like myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two people who were foreign language experts um, mm-hmm. who had worked in, you know, various governmental security clearance type roles for, for several years who I would say why, while their training I think was not informal linguistics per se, the languages that they learned really gave them an appreciation for what we do um, in the mm-hmm, linguistics mm-hmm. world. And it was, you know, a pleasure working with all three of those people. Um, we also had people on our team who were more classically um, Department of Defense governmental trained, who would, you know, sometimes be going and uh, to clients that uh, that you required a security clearance to visit, that kind of thing. So you had a team that had linguists, people I could, you know, talk shop with, so to say. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you also had people who were from a totally different world than I was used to. You know, I yeah. I don't really have, a, you know, a defense background whatsoever. And mm-hmm. that was kind of cool. And you see that in the professional world. You're talking to someone who really has quite the different background than you. So um, it was really nice to see. This is something that I think um, is perceived as a challenge often by linguists who are going into industry in that you're not with other linguists. So you have to learn how to talk to people who aren't other linguists and you can't get all jargony and talk shop. So that's a new skill that you have to learn is how to present somewhat, you know, maybe extremely complex linguistic ideas to people who aren't in fact linguists. And while it is a challenge, it's also a a huge area of growth in your career because the chances of you working only with other linguists for, you know, the the rest of your 30 years having a career is like zero. You're always going to be working with people who aren't linguists and being able to translate is just so incredibly important. And again, I think this is something that no one ever tells you in graduate school. You're so used to talking with other people who are linguists. And then the only other people you're ever trying to tell about linguistics are like your family. And they're not going to understand it anyway, because they don't really care. Um, But you you just, you know, that's a whole skill, learning to talk about linguistics to non-linguists. I wish that that was something that was taught in universities. I think it would be so helpful. For sure. Um, but I would say like of all the challenges that I think, um, you know, linguistics graduates have to deal with in, in getting into the into the job market, that's actually the one I'm the most bullish about and most confident in my fellow mm-hmm. linguists about. In that mm-hmm. when you major in linguistics and you study linguistics, 
you are probably describing linguistics to different people in your lives all the time. You know, you probably, you know, it's very likely you're dating someone who has no idea what the hell linguistics is. Mm-hmm. You have, def- as you mentioned, you have family members who don't know. You have friends who don't know. You know, people on the street who ask you what you do. Um, you probably have done that to some degree. And I would say for a lot of people, it's not that big of a stretch to have mm-hmm. to describe it in a professional setting. You know, certainly there's there's additional skills you have to develop to do that, but you're already on your way. Um, and mm-hmm. I think for anyone listening, you, it's doable. I promise. Um, I, I really <laughs> yep, do. I, I agree. I think it's one of those things that seems like a huge challenge from the outside. And then once you make that realization, as you were just saying, it's something that you've been doing and you're just doing it in a different context now. It, it becomes like, oh, I can do this. Um, I, I will say from my own experience that when uh, I've been talking with clients uh, about names and branding, and I lay some linguistic knowledge on them, they love it. They just think mm. it's the most interesting, cool thing. And mm. they look at you like you're a wizard and like, how do you know this stuff? It's like, well, this is linguistics. And and it's it's great. Like you get such a receptive and appreciative audience when you can explain things in a way that they can understand. Absolutely. And what I will say, and you know, I'm, I'm not sure if others kind of have this feeling, but you know, I think... I'm the kind of person where if you're around people that are similar to you for too long, you can kind of go crazy. You know, <laughs> I always felt that when I was in grad school around linguists all day, the number one thing I wanted to do was just like, you know, go to a bar and watch a basketball game with people who don't care about phonetics or phonology mm-hmm. at all, who don't know what a fricative is. Like that's, that's literally all I wanted. Um, and I think that's one of uh, the things that I think made mental health a lot easier, both at my mm-hmm. first job out of grad school and then over at Alexa um, where there's just so many people, they're software engineers, they're product people, they're UX people, and their primary interest is not linguistics, and that's awesome. Absolutely. So having mentioned that, you're not working at Expert anymore. Tell us about the job you have now. Um, there's, a, there's a really real you know, argument to staying uh, at Expert. It was a really a lovely, lovely place to work. I would say that one of the one of the frustrations I think a lot of people have living in DC, this is a sort of a DC thing writ large, is you know government can be very frustrating and very slow. Mm-hmm. And when you're dealing with governmental clients, the speed of innovation can be very very slow. Um, you know they they really don't want you to change too much year after year after year um, in the services that you provide them, and that can sometimes be frustrating. Um, and in addition, I started to get that feeling sometimes where a lot of our products would be used by, you know, a small elite group of, you know, defense people. But I, I got, you know, a bit of the feelings that I got in grad school every now and again, where like, you know, there's only a small amount of people that might be using this. Um, not to the same degree, but, you know, the shadows of those feelings still remained. Um, my wife and I, who are actually both from the Boston area, um, moved to Boston from D.C., um, and when we found out that we were going to be doing that, um, one of the things that I had sort of known in the back of my mind is that, you know, of all the cities in North America, Boston has one of the better ones for tech linguistics. Um, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. DC, it's governmental linguistics par excellence. Um, but there's really a lot of tech linguist jobs up here. Uh, you know, in, in Cambridge alone, you have, you have Microsoft, you have, uh, Apple, you have Google down in Seaport where I work, uh, you have, you have Amazon. Um, and, you know, I threw an application in, uh, to Alexa that had been doing a lot of, uh, 
um, a lot of posting. I had seen a couple of posts on LinkedIn. I went on Amazon.jobs and uh, took a look as well. Um, and uh, lo and behold, this uh, this you know job came up in uh, Alexa Entertainment. And one of the things in considering the role that I went to go look at is basically just how many people on Earth own an Alexa, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of Alexa connected device. I'm forgetting the exact number, but you know, it's in the you know tens of millions, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going you know, earlier in this conversation, I was speaking about a paper that is probably not even going to be cited by a thousand people, maybe read, you know, you know, fully by maybe a couple hundred at most to a device where if you're working in, in a certain parts of Alexa, you're getting utterances that are, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people a month. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Like, like I can't imagine a place that has higher impact when you're doing linguistics. That's crazy. So I applied. And I think by that point, I think largely because of, you know, the professional linguists that I had begun to meet, um, speaking, uh, you know, speaking to you, speaking to uh, Emily Pace, you know, being able to, you know, kind of, you know, understand, you know, this world and our special interest group at, at the LSA, I felt very confident walking into the interview, you know, knowing mm-hmm. what your worth is um, and, you know, being able to say like, you know, I formerly a lowly grad student who was eating rice and beans every night <laughs> could actually get this role. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, I start working there. Um, and it's really, it's, it, in a lot of ways, it's quite similar to grad school and that you really are dealing with like, you know, really intense, complicated, you know, linguistics problems every day, both phonologically, phonetically, and semantically. Um, but, you know, really, it's it's not like grad school at all, and that like you know the demands, and you know what what success is, is just drastically different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These are such good stories. This is just so great. I think people are going to take such a lot from this. Um, what is the environment like there for you? So comparing it to expert, uh, where there were some linguists, but lots of other people, and you were talking about how at um, Alexa, there's lots of people who aren't linguists. Do you feel like there's more linguists that you work with or, or is it about the same, I would say, ratio of linguists to non-linguists? It, it's funny. I would say that the ratio maybe, I would say I probably work with linguists more often at Alexa just because, you know, I'm on a team that has, you know, 10 linguists on, on it as opposed mm-hmm. to just, you know, basically two, three. Um, beforehand. Mm-hmm. But that being said, it doesn't feel like I'm linguistics dominant just because the amount of people that I interact with over the course of like a month mm-hmm. is, you know, it could be in the hundreds. And it's everyone yeah. from, you know, a high level executive to a product manager to an annotator um, to different kinds of software engineers, statisticians, et cetera, that, you know, I don't feel like, you know, I'm, you know, in a linguistics cocoon by any means. You know, Alexa is very integrated end to end. So there's a lot of different kinds of people you're talking to. It's really astounding. Yeah, I think this is something um, I've chatted with other people about. And it, it's another thing to consider for people who are looking for careers, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of it depends on the kind of person that you are and how you work best, what a good work environment is like. You seem to be somebody who really thrives on this amount of contact. You know, you said in a month you might come into contact with hundreds of people, but 
realistically, that's not for everybody. There are some right. folks who really don't thrive in situations like that. They want that little team that maybe they work mm -hmm. with like three or four other people. And this may not be something that people find out. Oh, well, you have to find out sometimes through trial and error, unless you have a good deal of insight into the way that you work. And it's, it's a thing that can be hard to learn. But the good thing about industry is that you can be in a job where you're not you don't have the right kind of environment that fits. And if it doesn't, like you can go and you can find a place that is actually a better environment for you. So you're not stuck being someone perhaps who has, you know, issues working with huge groups of people for the rest of your career, right? Like you can go somewhere else and work with a smaller group and that'll be okay. For sure. You know, definitely. And you know, I have seen, you know, roles out there that are, you know, are, you know, on much smaller teams. And as a matter of fact, like even within Alexa itself, there's a really big difference in terms of how many people you'll, you'll contact. To give you an example, mm -hmm. I mean, I work with entertainment. So if you've ever asked any Alexa device, anything related to playing a video or anything related to music or anything related to books, that's us. That's the team mm -hmm. I work with. And that's, as you can imagine, a lot of traffic, right? That's mm -hmm. the highest traffic stuff we get. We have teams that you know, might uh, be working on um, robotics, which, you know, right now is not so many people. Um, not so many people are asking uh, um, robotics-related requests uh, to Alexa. You have mm -hmm. people who um, are asking Alexa health questions, which until recently wasn't, you know, that highly trafficked of, of, a, uh, of a thing. You have people working on, you know, home automation kind of things that is still not so high traffic. And I would say in those roles, you're probably interacting with, you know, less people than I do, mm -hmm. um, although the problems you deal with are, you know, equally as, as fascinating and puzzling at times. Um, and it's certainly the case. I mean, outside of Alexa 2, all over tech, you know, different linguist, uh, linguistics roles in government, it's really incredible the variety of team sizes that mm -hmm. I've seen. Um, even in my you know sh relatively short amount of time working in the industry. That's so interesting to hear that there's such a variety just at Amazon anyway. Mm -hmm. And I, I bring this up just because uh, I think, again, for people who are just coming out of academia, they don't really know what it's like. And sometimes you can get a false impression that all work environments are the same. Mm -hmm. So either all the jobs that are out there, if you're in tech working with hundreds of people, or, you know, if you're not in tech, maybe if you're in marketing, you're always going to be working in really small groups. And if that's not a good fit for you, well, too bad. You're just going to have to learn to live with it. And that's not true at all. You know, there's, as you say, there's just so much variety and you, you just have to kind of find your way to the thing that's going to work best for you. So having now worked at Amazon for a while, what kind of linguists are they looking for generally? And, and I don't mean specifically specialized, but if there are people coming out of academia now and they think, well, I'd like to apply for a job there, what, what's the best way that they can present their skill set? That's a huge question, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because the reason I'm pausing is I actually just got two simultaneous answers jumping into my head. Um, one's a lot easier to, to, to deal with, actually, and easier to, and easier to do. Um, the first one is actually what I would call the Amazonian answer um, in <laughs> okay. that basically uh, Amazon for, you know, anyone who knows people that work there, they will know what I'm talking about immediately. It has uh, a list of leadership principles. I think there's like 15 or 16 at this point. Um, and, you know, normally I think when a lot of corporations have their sort of buzzwords, uh, you know, they're just kind of buzzwords and that's all. But um, at, at Amazon and I think particularly at Alexa, those leadership principles People really do live by them. 
Um, I'm not going to do as good of a job as describing them as one who could just, you know, Google Amazon leadership principles. You'll, you'll read it and you'll see if that seems like you, but I would say more in terms of speaking to someone who is, you know, not maybe less familiar with industry to begin with. I think the kind of skills that you want to sell to, you know, someone like me, who is, you know, I'm, I'm beginning to interview people, you know, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm looking at various candidates. You really want to have someone who is very demonstrably excited about using their linguistic skills in a way that really benefits people um, Mm -hmm. and benefits products. I think a lot of the not successful candidates that I've seen, I think still treat linguistics as, you know, a a mechanism for, you know, gaining more scholarly knowledge Mm. um, as a, uh, a mechanism of, you know, academic prestige, et cetera. And I think that's a lovely thing in many ways, but more to the point, you really want someone who can actually channel it into a workable product. You know, to give you an example, you know, it's, let's say I was a, a recording artist, right? Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of people were asking Alexa, play Ezra Wishograd, right? I think someone who's still in linguistics for for the academic prestige, you know, they'll they'll be arguing about like the height of my vowels, um, at the end of my name and, you know, can someone deal with that consonant cluster, um, of, you know, the velar with the rhotic and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what different populations would pronounce it differently. Um, and let's do a long longitudinal study. Let's do a study where we have different, you know, socio, you know, sociological factors, you know, gender, race, native language, et cetera. Or there's the person saying, okay, we have a deadline and our automatic speech recognition model needs to get Ezra's name right, first name and last name. Do we do um, a quick uh, ASR fix that maps, you know, to this particular NLU output? Or, you know, do we do sort of a longer term solution where, you know, Ezra belongs to a class of other names that also have a similar consonant cluster? Do we have more time? Um, What kind of goal is this associated with? Is this with a product that can wait six months or is this a product that um, happens now? and let's look at the customers that are, you know, currently pronouncing our stuff um, and how are, you know, how are they performing? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That second set of operative questions, you know, those are the ones that kind of make me excited. But if those aren't the things that are excited for you and in reality, you really just kind of want to posit, you know, the more the theoretical elements that are underpinning the issue. I don't know if industry is the place that you're going to get excited, you know, mm-hmm. and that's perfectly mm-hmm. fine. But I think your excitement or lack thereof becomes very evident in a lot of interview mm-hmm. processes. And mm-hmm. what I tell people is that like, you know, there, there are a lot of perks to being a linguist that works in tech, but it's really got to be something that you enjoy on, on some level. Mm-hmm. Right. I will also say that many people have found that they can do both, right? It, it's not mm-hmm. necessarily one or the other. You can be really excited about developing products and making progress. Sure. And if you still have that itch for the theoretical stuff, you can do that alongside of your work. You can still publish. You can still, you know, do some research and gather your data and investigate interesting things. And I believe that that's another myth that people see when they're coming mm-hmm. into industry is thinking, well, this is it. I'm giving up all of my research and publishing. And and that's just not true at all. People continue to do lots of really cool, innovative work and publish papers and give presentations. It's just in a different context now. So it is not giving up all of your academic training to do that kind of work. You can absolutely do both. Absolutely. You know, you can certainly, 
I certainly I work with people every day who are ambidextrous in that regard. But I would say is that for the in, the industrial questions that I deal with on a day to day basis, it has to be something that interests you, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, I've I've seen people, you know, people talk about burnout in academia. There's also burnout in industry, too, for mm-hmm. people for whom really something more academic really is what their calling is. Um, and that's the direction they want to go. And I certainly don't fault those people one bit. But, you know, one of the things I would say is, you know, start a conversation with with someone like me, someone who went into, you know, the industrial side of things and, you know, see see if it's really for you. Because if Mm -hmm. it's not, it's a really tough job. Yes, absolutely. And it's always um, a journey of self-discovery as you're doing these different things. And it's often, as I'm sure, you know, you have found out, it's not like academia where you go and you get that tenure track position and that's your job, right? Job hopping is fine. Having different jobs is fine. Exploring different career paths is fine. And it might take you three or four jobs until you find the thing that that really, you know, is your sweet spot for what you're going to do. And that's perfectly okay. It's not like it's a mistake to, to start a wor- working in a position that isn't really the thing that you love, like that's how you're going to find out that it's not the thing that you love is actually by doing it. And then you can go do something else and it's okay. Certainly. I mean, I feel that everyone around me um, at Alexa is, you know, on some kind of professional journey. Um, and I mm-hmm. think that's talked about very openly industrial linguistics where basically, you know, this is your role now. How do you want to develop? And I think career development is something that's very frequently talked about um, mm-hmm. At Alexa, um, it was talked about at Expert as well um, of, you know, where do you want to go? You know, are you excited more on like the data science side? Are you excited on the managerial side? Are you excited um, on, you know, the automatic speech recognition side, on the NLU side? You know, that's, I think, talked about a lot and very openly. And that's, mm-hmm. it's one of the very cool things that there is no ex- expectation of, you know, working at the same role for 20 years. Right. You know? And as you were just saying a minute ago, for some people, that's not a good fit. For some people, really what they want is a job that they're going to do for the next 20 years because that's where they're going to thrive and flourish. And that's great if yep. that's what you're going to do. Uh, so it's just finding the the place where you want to be. And part of that is your skill set. Part of it is your preferences. Part of it is just your personality. You know, I often say that the job that I've had is perfect for my personality because I have a short attention span. So I really like doing project work. So Mm -hmm. I do a project. It's four to weeks, six weeks. It's done. And I'm on to the next thing. And if I had to work on a project for an entire year, I would go insane because I just don't have the kind of patience and attention to work really hard and devotedly on something for an entire year. And for other people, that's like doing project work is kryptonite because it's not enough time. You know, six weeks isn't enough time to spend on this. How can we be done with it when we haven't explored every opportunity? So you just have to figure out what works for you and where you're going to do your best work. Of course. And one of the things that I would, I would say, and and for anyone listening in order to kind of understand, you know, where you, where you stand um, is that I've found that linguists outside of academia are remarkably ready to have conversations with you. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. al- almost eerily so. Like, it's really incredible. Um, <laughs> where basically, you know, it's people asking me on, you know, quick things on LinkedIn, people I've very much never met before, probably never been in the same state as them before, um, but asking me questions. Hey, you know, 
do you use skill X at Alexa? If I'm applying mm -hmm. to Alexa, do I need skill Y or Z or something like that? And I'm happy to answer those questions. And it's yeah. it's funny. It's a, a community where, you know, even if I've never met you, I, I do, I'm confident enough that I have enough of, of a similarity with you in, in your journey that, you know, I feel like I can answer those questions in a reasonably helpful way to a person asking. Um, yeah. And I think we're all in a very, very exciting time because I would say the two jobs that I had since uh, since grad school did not exist eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And this is all like a newly emerging emerging world. And it's really an exciting time to go in and get that experience because we are the first generation of, you know, of language engineers. We're the mm -hmm. first generation of knowledge engineers in you know, the first generation of computational linguistics in many cases. So it's all like a very kind of thrilling time uh, in my mind. I agree 100%. And thank you for mentioning the outreach because I would very much like to put your LinkedIn um, link in the show notes for this so that if people wanted to contact you, they could do so through that way. And I think the Linguistics Beyond Academia community, all of us who are employed outside the university system, we're ready to give back, right? Especially when nobody was there for us at the yeah. beginning and we we remember what that was like and we want to say no it doesn't have to be like that for everybody we can help we can all help each other and the people that you're helping now are then going to take that and pay it to the people who reach out to them when they've got their jobs in industry as well so it'll just be a, a big ongoing circle of help that we give each other for sure and you know i uh you know i want to be certainly honest about my intentions you know a lot of it is you know i really wanted to help another individual another one I love working with great people, love working with smart people. So I know that the university system produces them. Um, and I always try to keep uh, an eye out and ear out. That sounds awesome. Although I will say to people, please do not contact Ezra on LinkedIn with a one-line message that says, please hire me, because that's just rude. Don't do that. Oof. <laughs> that that's bound to get you ignored if you do that to anybody. And believe me, <laughs> I've had people do that to me on LinkedIn. And I just say to them, thanks, but that's not the way to, to do it try again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not every LinkedIn inbox message is going to be a gem. That's that's for right. sure. <laughs> so we've been talking for a while and this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for going into such depth about these things and talking about you know, your job and, and the environment and all that. I think, like we were just saying, this is part of that community that's there to help linguists with their their careers and, and what they want to do. I really view this podcast as just part of one of many tools that exist along with the people like you and me who are there to talk to everyone. So as we're wrapping up here, any parting advice or thoughts that you want to get out that we didn't already say? Um, learn how to negotiate a salary. <laughs> I always yeah. tell people that. I think of all the skills that I did not have, that was probably easily number one. Um, mm -hmm. It's hard to do. It's very much against my personality in every single way, but mm -hmm. um, look around, try your best, and try to find someone who can talk you through that because you better come prepared. That's yeah. what I'll say. What a great piece of advice. I'm using that as the pull quote for this episode because it's just, yes, I could not agree with you more. <laughs> Do your research before you go in so you know what the going rate is for people doing what you do. And then don't take their first offer. Just don't. Nope. <laughs> That's why it's called negotiation. <laughs> Definitely. I think if uh, if 2017 me was listening to this, he would probably just like shrink into his chair. <laughs> <laughs> 
Great. That's perfect. Thank you. And thank you, Ezra, for taking the time to talk with me. Um, maybe we'll check back in in six months or so to see how things are going and, and see if there's, uh, you know, development in your position or maybe you will be at somewhere else. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows? And definitely love to check in again. And this has been an absolute pleasure. Great. Thank you so much. Linguistics Career Launch 2021 was a one-month intensive program intended to familiarize linguistics students and faculty with career options beyond academia in business, tech, government, and nonprofit organizations. Videos of all our recorded sessions are available on our YouTube channel. LCL 2021 was organized by Nancy Frischberg, Alexander Johnston, Emily Pace, Susan Steele, and Laurel Sutton. You can get in touch at linguisticscareerlaunch at gmail.com.